This week on Art of the Air is pleased to have award-winning author David Hoppe return to share his satiric novel, Mondo Potus. Next, we speak to Toll Theater's new associate director, Christopher Place, who's also appearing in Murder Ballad, opening July 7th. Our spotlight is on Chicago Street Theater's gender-bending version of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, opening July 14th. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art. And show the world your heart. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, and WDSO 88.3 FM. Our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at WVLP.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome to Art on the Air Spotlight from the Chicago Street Theater. Their upcoming production this summer is going to be something kind of unique. Of course, everyone knows uh, about Bill Shakespeare and the uh, shows he has, but they're going to have a different take on it, and she's going to talk about it. Teresa House is the director, and she's going to tell us about that. We're going to have Julius Caesar. Welcome to Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Well, now this will kind of represent the close of your uh, 2022-23 season, but it's uh, kind of a unique take on uh, Julius Caesar. Everyone's usually familiar with it and everything, so tell us a little bit about your production, and we'll talk a little bit about you also. Sure. So Julius Caesar is kind of an icon in history. Everyone's heard of him and, um, you know, we all know what happened to him, but it's still a little bit of a mysterious story, a certain mysterious circumstances. So um, I, I'm a high school teacher and I teach uh, Julius Caesar every year for my 10th graders. And so uh, every year that I read it, I get a little more out of it. And so um kind of wanted to explore a a little different side to Julius Caesar. Um, One uh, reason I decided to go with a mostly female cast um, is really because there's only two named female characters in the whole show. And those two characters, it's um, Portia and Calpurnia, they're the wives of Brutus and Caesar. And they seem to just uh, know way better than everybody else 
um, kind of like what, what, how dangerous this is. And my students and I like to joke, we should have all listened to Portia. We should have all just listened to Calpurnia. (laughs) That could could be theme of life. You know, most men need to be listening to the women in their life and they'd be a lot better off. It's like, you know, like, maybe it's not a good day to go to the Senate today, you know. Exactly. Yeah, and we decided to make the soothsayer a woman as well. And I think at that point, I just thought, well, that's, you know, it's kind of an interesting perspective to start to think, okay, how does warfare work with um, female presenting characters? And how does manipulation work? And how does fear work and power and all of those things that traditionally when we think of, um, you know, political like coup, um, you know, women are, are pretty badass too, and they can <laughs> do some pretty intense warfare themselves. So, I'm curious where you teach. Tell us a little bit about you and your background in theater. Yeah, so I teach at Hobart High School. Um, I teach English um, for sophomores, and then I teach dual credit classes for the seniors. And I just love literature. I really um, I liked the Shakespeare I read in high school, and I I. You know, I, I like to bring a little bit of uh, modern flair to the curriculum, but, you know, Shakespeare is such a, an icon and so classic, and we got to learn from the greats. So um, I thought this was a cool way to combine the two, I think, is to be a little bit more, um, you know, this is Shakespeare. This is how Shakespeare is still relevant in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Local conspiracy, fifteen ninety nine. That's right. That's right. Well, um, the the play was fifteen ninety nine. The um, conspiracy was forty four BC. Um, so incredibly old story, but you know, still very applicable. And you know, I think Shakespeare in the Park is kind of a cool way to do it because it's you know it's free and people can just walk up and be fascinated by it and come watch and not have to pay any money. Do you have any theater background uh, besides uh, being an English teacher? Um, I do and I don't. So I, <laughs> I, um, I was a, the assistant director at the Hobart High School Theater for four years. Um, and we did a bunch of productions there together. Um, I'm not much of an actor, so I'm not <laughs> not on stage very often. But um, I I grew up uh, watching my sister do theater ever since I was a little kid. So big theater patron. <laughs> He's very good. Okay, I was going to ask you, since you're doing Shakespeare, you probably have an opinion about that. Do you think Shakespeare actually wrote Shakespeare? There's a lot of controversy about he was not actually the author, that he was basically the person who directed and staged the material from it. It was more like improv back then anyway, but what do you think about that? Oh, that's such a great question. And um, I, my, my wife has an opinion. She's, uh, she thinks that Sir Francis Bacon wrote them um, just because it's a fun little conspiracy to, that's kind of harmless. Um, I, I think I agree with, um, you know, the uh, actor David Tennant. He gave yes. a, an interview once with, I can't remember who it was, but um, they asked him the same question. And David Tennant said, uh, I don't really care. <laughs> It's brilliant. Whoever wrote it, it's brilliant. Yeah. And um, I, I, I like his answer because his is uh, probably my favorite Hamlet that I've seen. Right. Well, I mean, and there's a lot of controversy about who did. But the uh, the one thing that sort of strikes me is that he had this intense theater career. 
And then later in life, he goes home and be, is a merchant. It's like he walked away from theater altogether. So, And from his background, he didn't have a lot of the background in like the Italian stories and things like that. Uh, you know, he did barely, a, you know, like a what middle grade education. But anyway, so that's that's my opinion of it. So, but yeah, it's great yeah, awesome. that you're bringing it. So tell us, uh, we have about a minute left, though, but tell us you're going to do a f- two free performances and then some paid performances for Chicago Street. So tell us all about that in this last minute we have. That's right. So um, at uh, Shakespeare in the Park, we have our first weekend that opens. Um, that's July 7th and 8th. So that'll be Friday and Saturday, um, the 7th and 8th. And the show starts at dusk. Um, that'll be at Central Park in the amphitheater. Um, so the big, big lawn with the splash pad, you can bring your chairs and blankets and there'll be vendors there to enjoy and then um, the next weekend will be Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the theater. And it will cost some money, but you get air conditioning. So <laughs> that would be very cool. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air Spotlight. That's Teresa House, director of Chicago Street Theaters, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, unique with a female cast. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. much. Art on the Air Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art on the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. We are pleased to welcome back David Hoppy to Art on the Air. David is an award-winning author, essayist, and playwright, and he received nine first-place awards from the Indiana Society of Professional Journalists in a variety of categories. His writing explores the intersection of politics, culture, and community. His most recent book, Mondo Potus, An American Love Story, is a satirical novel with reviews calling it a smart and hilarious tour de force and with humor reminiscent of Vonnegut. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air, David. Aloha and welcome. Thank you, Esther. Glad to be here. It's so good to see you. Well, David, after we had your last one about Mid-Century Boy, which is kind of autobiographical, this is a whole different bent, but we'll talk about the book a little bit more, kind of review your background again for our audience who didn't hear that interview. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got from where you were to where you are now. Well, uh, I grew up around Chicago, grew up in a town called Mount Prospect, Illinois. It's a northwest suburb of Chicago. Um and uh, went to school up in Minnesota and, uh, you know, have lived in a number of different places. Um, but I came to Michigan City in 1980 originally. I moved here from Northern California at the time. Um, I came to work for the Michigan City Public Library and uh, worked here from 1980 to 88. Uh, moved down to Indianapolis and lived there for 25 years. And, uh, my wife, Mellie, and I moved back up here 10 years ago now um, and are living in Long Beach. Um, so that's uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any, any early influences in being an author, you know, like uh, uh, authors that you admire? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, 
you know, going way back, um, you know, to like junior high school, I think I was reading people like Alistair McLean, for instance, who wrote The Guns of Navarone. Um, you know, adventure novels, um, paperbacks that I could pick up at the drugstore for 50 cents. Um, as time went by, of course, uh, I started really writing seriously, writing poetry and uh, was very influenced, oh gosh, by people like Gary Snyder and Robert Creeley and um, wrote poetry seriously for about 10 years before I even attempted to write prose. Um, but uh, over time, uh, you know, began being interested in, in a variety of different writers, really. Um, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett continue to be big influences. Um, uh, Philip K. Dick in science fiction, you know, is somebody that I've read extensively. Um, Love Saul Bellow, of course, um, you name it. I mean, uh, uh, I've just finished uh, reading Carl Sandburg's four-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln during the uh, Civil War. Wow. And that, it seems to me, is kind of like the Grand Canyon of American letters. So um, I think, you know, I would say what any writer would probably tell you, which is that I've read widely, been influenced by lots of different people, um, and uh, try to keep two or three books going at a time. Do you find that difficult to try to do jump from one book to another? Not necessarily. Um, you know, I, I'll be reading, you know, fiction on the one hand, nonfiction on the other, and, you know, some movie star biography um, as well. So, you know, they all have their own niches and uh, they all speak to me in different ways. Um, you know, most recently, for instance, I've been reading a lot of Jim Harrison, who originally was from Michigan and uh, write, wrote poetry, fiction and nonfiction. Um, and, uh, you know, I find that inspiring because uh, I try to cross genres, genres quite a bit myself. So David, how do you how do you pick your books? Do you just go to the library and um, peruse? Do you read the New York or you know New York Book Review recommendations? What leads you to your books? That's a great question, Esther. Because uh, you know I, I'm I'm a browser. I think one of the things that we've really lost uh, with our new technology and online consumerism. Um, has really been the the art of browsing. I used to love when I was in college going into our local bookstore, which was called The Hungry Mind. And I could spend a couple of hours easily in there just browsing the various shelves. And it was through browsing that I discovered um, a lot of things that I didn't have any idea I was interested in going in. Um, yeah, so I'm a big believer in browsing. I love to go to the public library and just kind of like peruse the stacks. Um, I like not necessarily having an agenda or knowing what it is I'm going to be reading next um, until I put my hand on it. I have a good friend who gives me his London book reviews. And so I read that like oh, a wow, book yeah. and I feel like I've I've like explored so many novels. Those reviews are just so concise. So, and leads sure, me to reading, the novel. Reading book reviews is a great way to get information and not just about books that you may want to read, but uh, general information. Yeah, it's true. 
So um, in moving from mid-century boy to writing this, and uh, which is, like I said, really a satirical novel, tell us a little bit about what brought you to want to write it before we talk about it. And you also have some excerpts from it. It was a newspaper article. Um, I ran across an article in The Guardian. This was about four years ago about a trailer park in South Florida that was located on the beach. Um, I believe it was called Briny Breeze. Um, Ooh, and what a great name. Those folks were interested in selling their property. Um, and they actually made an appeal to the Trump Corporation to see if possibly there'd be an interest in uh, the Trump company acquiring what they thought was, you know, a rather attractive piece of beachfront property. Um, nothing ever came of that, but as I was reading it, it just struck me that it would be a great location for a presidential library. The idea of locating a presidential library uh, on a stretch of South Florida coastline um, kind of captured my imagination. And I began thinking about this place that in my book is called Salty Shores um, and becomes the first sort of abortive effort to create a presidential library in the year 2054 uh, for a three-term president um, whose daughter, Luscious, is about to succeed him uh, for a fourth term yet, so creating a kind of dynasty. Um, but there's an issue, which is sea level rise. And, and uh, the folks in Salty Shores, while they're able to sell their land to a president for a presidential library, are able to get away with it because uh, they're, they're going to you know, be rewarded for the fact that sea level rise isn't going to affect them anymore. The president, however, has to you know, find a new alternative for his presidential library. And so an aircraft carrier is ultimately selected because it will evade it. the, you know, the risks of sea level rise. It can simply set sail. And so Mondo Potus is a novel about uh, the creation of a presidential library on a decommissioned aircraft carrier, the former USS Gerald R. Ford, um, which was, by the way, a real aircraft carrier and still is for all I know. Um, but this, of course, as I say, takes place in 2054, and it's told from the point of view of the presidential librarian, a fellow named Duke Mutz. So, David, I, I have to ask, are you? is it at a dinner party and you discuss names, or are these names all from your own, you know, your own imagination? Or Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, no, all, all the names, all the names in, in this book... Um, are my own creations. Yeah. I have to take responsibility for them. <laughs> Total responsibility. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yet it alludes to a, uh, it's obviously fiction, but it alludes to events that sometimes we're going through are based on a little bit of the history as if you project it out in the future and very interesting. Maybe it would be a good time to maybe read a section from that uh, and then maybe we'll sure. come back and do something and give our audience a flavor of what you're doing. Mondo Potus. I'd be happy to. This is, um, as I mentioned, the, the narrator's name is Duke Mutz. Um, he has hijacked the presidential library, the aircraft carrier, and he is sailing it around in circles in the South Atlantic Ocean. 
and he's speaking into a tape recorder, telling his story, um, hour by hour, while he waits for his wife, Luscious, who is now the president, he waits for her minions to come and kill him um, for having stolen the aircraft carrier. Um, how he gets to that point is the story of the book. But before we get to that point, um, I'll read from our number three, which is called A Prayerful Moment. My name was one of the first things POTUS liked about me. Early on, he seized upon the yin and yang of it, calling me Duke if something made him glad or amused, and Mutz when he felt the media or so-called elites were out to get him. It didn't hurt that he assumed I was named after John Wayne, known to all who loved his movies as the Duke. POTUS insisted on this notion for as long as he lived, introducing me to everyone from foreign dignitaries and oligarchic billionaires to crippled children and Venezuelan war widows as being my guy. You know, he's named after a movie star. Not that I in any way resemble John Wayne. As POTUS's son, Wilhelm, better known as Billy, once hissed in a fit of sexually thwarted pique, I look like a second string second baseman. I'm not sure if he had a particular player in mind, but comparing my looks to those of a light-hitting infielder is probably fair. Not bad for a librarian. Ask anybody what a librarian is supposed to look like in the 1950s come to mind. A blue-haired lady, her glasses attached to a decorative chain, wearing a cardigan sweater and sensible shoes. I used this stereotype to my advantage, made myself a pleasant surprise at professional gatherings. Luscious certainly liked me well enough. Billy, too. Billy. Luscious introduced us. This was sometime after our formative night at the Breakers. And after I quit my job in L.A. to serve as Luscious's wingman, media advisor, POTUS began turning to me for feedback, eagerly given, regarding the organization of his monstrously overbrimming multimedia archive. There were storage facilities stacked with bankers' boxes, full of clippings, photography, promotional materials, and collectible knickknacks emblazoned with POTUS's name and face. I waded through a swamp of magazine covers, tabloids, videos, cassettes, and discs, masses of audio tape, even oil paintings, trophies, and a cookbook featuring recipes for dishes I doubt POTUS ever tasted, like Darjeeling Vesuvio and the cayenne-inflected oysters out loud. Billy had been abroad trying to secure the rights to some coastal property in American Samoa for a real estate development aimed at retired surfers. He was sunburnished and bearded when we met, wearing an adventurer's khaki shirt with buttoned epaulets on his shoulders. Where's the sand dune, he told me. I see a dream. As you know, Billy and Luscious were half-siblings born of different mothers. Billy was slightly younger but more guarded. His father's success seemed to transmit a low decibel buzz, like an invisible dog fence across the horizon of Billy's aspirations, intermittently jolting him into fits of paranoia and self-loathing. Cocaine didn't help, not did, nor did the frequent microdoses of LSD he hoped would rewire his brain and emulsify the shadow POTUS cast over his self-regard. Sexual ineptitude didn't help, unlike his dad, whose appetite amounted to a caricature of late 20th century heterosexual bravado, Billy kept his preference for men on the down low. Poor Billy. 
He seemed powerless to hide his attraction to me at first, a fact I realized could compromise me within the family circle. So I played dumb, pretending Billy's often ham-handed advances were his version of avant-garde humor. Whatever dark spots his father imprinted on his psyche, Billy was mostly fine with being heir apparent to a media empire. And when POTUS vaulted over a scrum of boring candidates to win the first of his three terms in 40, Billy was at his side, smiling, glassy-eyed into the mob of confetti-flinging fans. Duke, he told me that night, sitting in his suite at the Willard Hotel overlooking Pennsylvania Avenue, as car horns honked and throngs of drunken pedestrians staggered below us toward the metro. It's like having all our birthdays at once. This is the mother of all branding opportunities. We toasted our good fortune with an under-chilled bottle of Moet. Billy hugged me, put his head on my shoulder. How does it feel, Duke? How does it feel to be part of, what do they call it, the royal court? Fabulous, I said, and meant it. Because you are part of this. Hell, you have the name for it. You're a duke. We both (laughs) laughed, and gently but firmly I made my exit, claiming to be exhausted, though in fact I was late for an assignation with Lush's. Billy tried to talk me into going with him to the Lincoln Memorial. Come on, he pleaded. It'll be just like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I asked for a rain check, and much to Billy's chagrin, slid sideways out the door, which was when he compared me to a second-string second baseman. Wow. Thank you. It should be, I almost want, you know, as I'm listening to you read it, I almost, I would love a book on tape, but it would almost be wonderful to be like a podcast where, you know, you do it in like 35-minute segments and finish the book that way. I would, boy... Well, thank you. Yeah, we've actually, um, the, Andy Fry, the fellow who designed the book um, and has been working with me on my books, um, has talked about doing a book on tape. He also records rock bands, and so um, he produces records. And so we've talked a little bit about this um, maybe someday. We'll see. Oh, good. So how did you and... And Brian uh, Berlinger collaborate on the art for the book. Did you do that in conjunction with each other? Oh my goodness, um, Brian Brian Berlinger. Uh, the, the the book, it needs to be said, contains nine original collages um, that were created, um, mostly for the book by a fellow named Brian Berlinger, um, who was one of my oldest and dearest friends. We met when we were teenagers. And, uh, you know, discovered a lot about life together um, over the course of many years. Um, And, uh, you know, so Brian was uh, a a big influence. Um, We became estranged uh, for about 30 years and lost touch with one another and then reconnected as I was writing the uh, letters from Michigan and uh, posting them on Facebook. Uh, Brian was reading them. Um, much to my surprise and pleasure. And, uh, and so we began a correspondence, but uh, I discovered quickly that, uh, you know, we were going to meet, but then Brian said meeting could be difficult because he had uh, experienced a really severe form of oral cancer and it had to have his tongue removed. And so he was no longer able to speak. Um, so... <laughs> We continued our correspondence, and he told me he'd been working on collages, that he had become a collage artist. And 
asked if I would like to see some of them. And I said, sure. And so he began sending me files full of these collages. And I thought they were terrific. And I was in the midst of working on Mondo Potus at the time and knew that I needed some kind of cover design. And so immediately my first thought was, um, one of these images would be perfect for the cover. And I told Brian that he was glad. And, uh, but he con con continued to send me more images in case there would be one that I would like better. And what ended up happening was that I liked so many of them that I wanted to actually incorporate them into the book itself. Um, not, I have to add as illustrations, of what's going on in the story so much as almost creating a kind of counter melody um, to what's going on in the book, mood setters, as it were. Um, and, uh, and so we wound up uh, choosing nine of the images that he had sent me, and those images appear throughout the story. And uh, like I say, I think that they really contribute to the mood and the fantastic notion that underlies the book itself. Um, Brian was very enthusiastic about the book. One of the most well-read guys I've ever known in my life. And so that meant a lot to me. Um, unfortunately, Brian died last November, um, shortly before, you know, we were about to bring the book forward. And uh, so he never got to see the, the final product, um, but I'm incredibly grateful that uh, we were able to reconnect. And, you know, from the time we'd been kids, we thought about wanting to collaborate on some kind of art project. And uh, we tried to include each other in various things that we were doing, but we never really found the right niche for each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that at the, you know, finally, as it turned out at the very end of Brian's life, we found um, this project. And uh, I'm really, as I say, grateful that we were able to, you know, bring this together. And I think Brian's images contribute tremendously to the overall feel of the book. Um, back in the 70s, I'd read a novel by the surrealist Andre Breton called Nadia, in which he incorporates photographs um, that have seemingly little, if anything, to do with the narrative that's taking place in the book itself. I was really struck by the juxtaposition of how, uh, you know, the, how the juxtaposition of those images and the narrative work together, in spite of the fact that they were not meant to be illustrations. And so seeing Brian's collages um, made me think of that experience and made me want to see if we could do something similar. And I'd like to think that we have. And it's a very wonderful legacy. It sure yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah, I have about, uh, you know, unfortunately, Brian had no next of kin. There was, you know, there, there was nobody in his life at that point um, to pick up the thread once he passed. And, um, and so we don't know what's become of his originals. Um, there, was, there was nobody to, um, you know, go into his apartment and take charge of his estate, such as it was. And, and so we don't know what's become of the originals, but I have around 50 collages, um, images of, of about 50 collages that he sent me. 
and uh, I hope to possibly do something with them at some point. Um, I remember talking to Laura Fosberg at the Lebesnik Center of the Arts. Um, she's a great curator, and she took a look at these images, and she said, you know, these terrify me, and I love them. Um, <laughs> so that kind of says it all. Well, I was going to ask you about your next project, but maybe we'll have to wait till you have it on next time. Tell us about where you can find Mondo POTUS. Yes, on Amazon. Um, you can you can uh, Google it on Amazon, Mondo POTUS, an American love story, and you'll find it, um, along with my other books, Mid-Century Boy and Letters from Michiana. That's excellent. Beautiful. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air, David. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Mondo Potus, which is now available, uh, an American love story. It's a satirical novel, and uh, it's very interesting. David, thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air. The time Thanks always goes too you. quickly. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. Art in the Air listeners, do you have a suggestion for a possible guest on our show, whether it's an artist, musician, author, gallery, theater, concert, or some other artistic endeavor that you are aware of, or a topic of interest to our listeners. Email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. This is Whitney Reynolds of The Whitney Reynolds Show, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Christopher Place to Art on the Air. Christopher developed an early admiration for the theater, though it wasn't until he was 27 that he actually actively pursued that direction. Now he is the newest member of the Toll Theater staff as the associate director. He also dabbles in comedy, improv, and Shakespeare. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Well, we're so glad to have you on board, and uh, welcome to the Toll Theater, the founders of the Toll Theater for many, many years, all the way back a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But anyway, <laughs> we want to find out more about you, and we want to hear your origin story, like where you grew up, early influences and things. I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So, Christopher, tell us about yourself. Very good. Well, thank you again so much for having me on and the invitation. This is a really great opportunity to to kind of get out in the community. Um, so I, I love it. Thank you again. Um, where I began, I began in on a fort in the middle of Missouri, uh, to the extent that uh, all the all the folks who are on the base actually called it Fort Lost in the Woods, Missouri, um, <laughs> which was kind of uh, it's a fun thing to, that I've been able to connect with a couple different people on along my journey. But um, grew uh, was born there, didn't stay there long. I don't remember my household there. My dad was in the military, so before I knew it, we had moved to Denver, Colorado, uh, and that is where I start r having memories, learning how to ski, seeing the mountains in the background, and still, whenever I go back to Denver, I've had two siblings who have moved back. Um, and back and forth, I should say. Um, but whenever I see those mountains in the horizon, there is just something about it that is grounding and, and beautiful, honestly, but it also, um, reminds me of home, reminds me of where I, where I started. So, um, we it live sounds there. like a sound of music moment. <laughs> <laughs> the hills are Exactly. Exactly. The mountains. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it, they are they are spectacular, and I I still love getting out in nature, uh, love getting in cold water. 
You know, I actually, <laughs> even before I was born, there's a story that my mom was whitewater rafting while pregnant with me. And actually the boat that she was on flipped <laughs> and oh like, uh, so yeah, I, I had a, I had a, a love Early for, immersion. for full immersion and, and kind of adrenaline even at that before, uh, I, I had a taste for it even before, um, I was fully out in the world, but, um, I wasn't wasn't anticipating telling that story. That's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> so, my dad went to West Point, and and then um, he was he was becoming a doctor. So part of our moving was whenever he, would, he my parents met in while he was in med school. Um, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a, a med student. Um, but whenever I was born, that was in eighty nine. Um, that was during a time where, uh, a year later, my dad was actually set to desert storm at desert shield. Um, and my mom was at home with three kiddos and her husband away at war. And she said, dear, I know you love this, but it is really tough. Like having you be away and being afraid for your well being." Um, so when you have completed your required years of service, you know, I'd really like if you would uh, move on from the military. So, um, so he completed his years. Uh, we then had a brief stint whenever I moved to Iowa. Iowa winters were nothing like Denver winters <laughs> whatsoever. Um, I think I have, a, have some scars on my face from the, the difference in the snow. Um, but uh, we lived there for a little bit of time, but before eventually my family settled in in St. Louis, Missouri, um, and that's that still remains my family's home. Uh, but whenever it comes to the arts and um, singing and like you you mentioned, Sound of Music, that is that is still one of the VHSs. It's a it's a double VHS that still lives in my parents' basement. So <laughs> I grew up on, on Sound of Music. Like my my dad, he will tell you he is not a singer, but he was a busy doctor. And um, even whenever he would come home late at night, um, he would start from the youngest and he would take each of us in his hands and bring us to the rocking chair and my parents room and he'd rock us and sing us do re mi fa so la ti and <laughs> uh, my favorite things like he would and yeah and it's and it's interesting um <laughs> as i've been training my voice more and more and even my my speaking voice um <laughs> my dad god love him and i know god does like vocal fry monotone like he's not tone deaf but definitely not a professional singer but it it meant like that was some of my favorite minutes of the day is being held by my dad as he would sing us a lullaby wow oh, such a precious memory I'm surprised he didn't sing edelweiss so, oh so in all the traveling you did and and um i'm Assuming I don't know what the age difference is between you and your siblings, but did you have theater 
in like high school or elementary school? And did you and your siblings, did you sing together? No. um, Besides at church, like, so my, I was, I was in the first pew family. That was my family. We showed up, we dressed up, you know, we, we carried a handkerchief and comb in our pocket because that's what my, (laughs) that's what men do is uh and so if you were if you really wanted and and my dad was military you know and so if you did did the thing you know dressed nice and had your shoes tied and your shirt tucked in like then you were able to get the praise from dad um but yeah we would show up early enough we'd sit in the front pew my mom was a cantor my dad was a lector um and so we were always constantly being there early and showing up and we sang together in the pews and we sang out loud and i loved that and that's still one of the things that the church has the corner on the market for participation in arts no matter what level you are there's something about when people just let go of their inhibitions and let go of their judgments and just start breathing and intoning together. And it's, it's something that if I have a dream for the toll, it would be to be able to capture just a part of that magic and have people feel welcome to join in the arts and participate together. Cause it's, it's primal, it's powerful. So it's healing. Yeah, it's, oh, totally healing, totally healing. Talk about belonging, you know, or it's, oh, God, God bless a Joe over there in the pew. He can't sing a lick, but he sings out all the greatest and he belongs. He has a place, you know, um, and if you have strong song leaders, if you have hymnals, then, you know, people learn how to read music. I I also took piano lessons for 10 years. My my mother's father um, was a piano player, actually, in a big band in a small town, Perryville, Missouri. Um, and so he had a piano in their household. Uh, my mom grew up playing piano, so she was insistent that all five of us kids um, learned how to play piano. So I, I took piano lessons for at least 10 years. Um, yeah, it was probably, it was over 10 years. Um but yeah, so I'm, I'm fortunate that I learned, I learned principles of reading music, of, of tempo, of um, even like having an ear for things, knowing when I'm on or off a note. Um, but yeah, those were, those are kind of my early musical or musicality trainings. Um, but my family was patrons of the arts. We were a family that would, whenever we would, when Christmas came around, uh, we were always looking for a show to go to. So that was a tradition that we'd have, you know, and um, whether it was Trans-Siberian Orchestra or Mannheim Steamroller, or we would go to like a recreation of the Christmas story, which it's funny to be living in the town now where that was based out of. It was based on Hammond is what I found out. Um, but it's, yeah, I, so we were always patrons of the arts. And actually, this will this this is a, a very cool part of my story. My dad's favorite musical 
was Godspell. Oh. And any time Godspell was in town, he'd find it didn't matter if it was Christmas season or whatever, he always found a reason for us to be able to go find and go to Godspell. And so um So you've seen many versions. I've seen many, many versions. And whenever the the little turn back oh man happens, like turn back, oh man. Uh I was a thirteen year old maybe. I don't know. It was in that like super, super awkward stage. But there's a moment where the actress flirts with the crowd and with their her big boa scarf and oh she found me in the crowd and I was <laughs> beat red, just completely like hot embarrassed like but loving it at the same time because I got to be <laughs> in the show but I I had such affinity for that show that um, I a dream role of mine was always either to play John or Jesus Um you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM, and WDSO, 88.3 FM. And being born with the name Christopher, my parents were always very clear. Christopher means Christ bearer. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, I, yeah, I, for a long time, I will admit, I had a Messiah complex. I was like, <laughs> I'm meant to bring, you know, goodness and righteousness and wonderfulness into the world. I am the next one, you know. Um, and so, yeah, especially that that role of Jesus and being able to like play that role was something that on. So have my you auditioned 30s, for that role? So in in the fall in the fall right before my thirty third year of life, the spring of my thirty third year. Um, there was an audition posting for a local theater that was doing Godspell. And I showed up. They had no idea who I was. I walked in and I saw the two people at the audition table turn and look at each other and then look back at me. And it was confirmed that I walked into the room and they're like, I think we found our Jesus. Um, <laughs> well, that, I got to play Jesus. That's great. And you know what's interesting about Godspell is that you can see the production. Productions can be so different in how they're structured. You know, in terms of uh, I worked on a production where they did it around a uh, a theme where it was like athletic, where the Jesus was in a referee costume and everyone. When I directed it twice, once this was kind of earlier on, I did it very much in LeMay and things like that and material. Second time I did it, I did it on a circus theme, you know, where uh, the Jesus character was a ringmaster. So you can do so much with that show and expand out on that. So, yeah. well, let's talk about how you, uh, before we move on to your role at Toll, no pun intended, but uh, yeah. what other theater you did, you know, we got you up through playing piano and everything like uh, post, maybe post high school studies and however you got into theater. So, yeah, so I I was in one musical in high school. Um, <laughs> my sister, her senior year, she was two years older than I. I, I was a sophomore. I had just gotten my license. Um, she was like, I'm going to audition for our musical. At her, and I grew up in St. Louis. In St. Louis, we have, or at least whenever I was growing up, there was like 18 single gender Catholic high schools in town so she was at one i was at one um 
but I auditioned for her show. And what was really unique about that, I was always an athlete. I was always on a team, ice hockey or roller hockey throughout the year. Um, but I could make her, uh, I could make her rehearsals because they didn't happen right after school. So I would go, I would get out of school. I would go to roller hockey practice. I'd go home. I'd have dinner with my sister and our family. And then we'd get in a car. We'd go pick up two other folks. Then we went to her school. Then we'd rehearse. Then I came back home. Then I have no idea how I did homework, but, uh, um, but that was the first musical I was in. And I was one of three. So I think the cast was 25 individuals. Uh, there were two male roles and I was the third male. <laughs> so I had no spoken lines. I was in the ensemble, but there was not a male part written in the show. So I ended up being a mute male face most <laughs> of the show. That was my first musical experience. Was I was just basically a prop, a male prop who danced. What musical uh, was it? It was called Found and Forgiven. It was it was a show that was written specifically for this uh, basically for this theater because they wouldn't get male auditions. So it was an all female version besides basically a father figure of the parago- uh, the prodigal son story. Excellent. So there's your first theater experience. How, how did you yeah. move on from there? Uh, so I went to college. I continued to just do the athletic thing. I played ultimate frisbee, but um, I always had this itch, and I would go to improv shows all the time. And I was like, "Those guys are amazing!" And I became friends with one of the big leaders in the group, and he was like, "Come on, audition! Come on, audition! Come on, do a show!" And like, finally, my senior year again, I was like, "I have to do this!" And auditioned for an improv show. I did one improv show, which was, it was like, we did a, I think we did two weekends of shows. Um, yeah, but that was, that was then my one stage experience. Um, I did some talent shows as a kid growing up. I actually, one of the other VHSs in my household was the the VHS of Bill Cosby's himself special. Um, and this is a common theme, but praise, praise from the father. Um, I memorized 90% of that special and I would whip it out at the dinner table and it would make (laughs) my dad howl in laughter. And so I learned the joy of making people laugh really early. Um, But again, so I did the improv show. That was amazing. But then I got out of it and I was dark. I wasn't on a stage for another, I mean, yeah, for five years. Um, I just got into, I started teaching high school. What did Uh, you do? I I was teaching high school and working with their Mm. student government and I was coaching their ultimate Frisbee team and I was doing way too much. So I burnt myself out in one year, um, and then moved on to campus ministry. I was working at a Catholic church that served the, the campus of Washington university in St. Louis, their campus and their students. Uh, and again, was like, I was singing in the choir. I would sometimes lead music on our um, on our uh, like Tuesday or Friday masses. Um, but again, I wasn't actually on stage. I wasn't actually acting and doing what I saw in those theater kids. I was like, 
they got something. I don't know what it is, but they just have this like freedom of expression that I want so bad. So I, I talked to people. I had a Rocky Mountain High John Denver moment where I was born in the summer of my 27th year, coming home to a place <laughs> I'd never been before. I put yesterday behind me, you know, and I I was like, I need to do this. If I don't try, I am going to regret it for the rest of my life. So um, the I turned 28 in Chicago um, as I moved up here. I got into improv classes. I started doing stand-up. I found that was really hard and was like, man, it's tough to write your own material and perform it. So then I found a musical down in, at the Monroe Theater Guild. I did Jesus Christ Superstar. It wasn't quite Godspell, but I was like, that's close. Uh, so my <laughs> parents came up and saw that. I found I loved singing and dancing. Um, I got roped into this amazing Shakespeare show where they trained an ensemble of us to be prepared to play any of 10 roles for a Hamlet so that the night of the show at the bar, we would draw cards to decide who would play what role. Wow. It was incredible. Oh, that's so, so it was, fabulous. It was like a Shakespeare, but it was constantly recast and re-updated. And it was gender blind, race blind. We just had to do it, which was amazing. Um but then I started living with the folks who I was doing that Shakespeare with. And one of them was the music director, like the go-to music director here at the Toll. And for their Christmas show of 2019, they could not find their leading man. And I had seen a couple of their shows and I was like, the Toll is like way out of my caliber of skill to be able to like perform on their stage. But Elizabeth was like, Christopher, I think... I think you can do this role. I think you do really great in it. So that was my invitation to come to the toll and perform with them. And I fell in love with Jeff and Kevin. I like fell in love with the toll. I, yeah. But then the pandemic hit in 2020. And so I was a whole reset. Like I took five steps forward and then seven steps back, but I stayed in touch with Jeff and Kevin. They then cast me in this show murder ballad for this summer and I was living up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago working manufacturing that's what covid landed me in um but I just sensed that there was a real invitation to come and be a part of this community so I reached out to Jeff and Kevin and I said hey I would love to do this show but I'm going to need to move down to Hammond and find a job like and Jeff's eyes lit up cuz he said we were just talking about hiring you. And that's how oh, I landed. Oh, boy, that's a moment. That's very, they're very <laughs> kismet. Well, we, we have just a couple minutes left, but tell us briefly what you'll do as associate director. And then talk real briefly about the show, the show dates and everything like that. Great. So associate director, my role is to get trained in all the administrative elements of the Toll Theater so that next year, Jeff and Kevin, they can just do the fun stuff. They want to just direct, just do all the theater stuff that they love so much. Um, and that's going to be the biggest part of my role. Uh, but eventually I'm going to need to learn how to hire on some more folks and um, keep this thing going. But uh, the show that we're putting on the two weekends after 4th of July, so 7, 8, 9, although the 9th is now show, sold out and July 14th, 
15th and 16th is called Murder Ballad. It is a dark and sexy rock opera, which means we're just going to have four of us singers singing the entire time. There's only three spoken lines in the whole show, and it's called Murder Ballad. And it's about a love triangle that's gone wrong. And it's, uh, yeah. it's a completely sung through musical. Completely. Well, anyway, we appreciate you coming on Art in the Air, sharing your wonderful story, Christopher. It was fantastic. Yeah, That's thank Christopher. Thank you so much for having me. Christopher Place. He's from the Toll Theater, the new associate director, but you can catch him in Murder Ballad, and it's coming up in July this uh, weekend. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air. Thank you. Thank oh, you very much so, for having it's me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. We'd like to thank our guest this week on Art in the Air, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP, 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO, 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker and for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself through art, and show the world your heart.